Now for the reading of God's word, uh, coming from John 8, 12 through 38. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. The word of God. Good morning and welcome to Midlands Church. My name is Aaron Spurlock. I am one of the pastoral apprentices here at Midlands and I am very thankful for the opportunity to preach again this morning for you guys. I'm even more thankful that, Lord willing, the next time that I get the opportunity to preach, I will be doing so in person. And I will no longer be preaching to myself in a camera or preaching to my dog in the corner or preaching to the wall. Uh, it's honestly kind of exhausting and I really like seeing your guys' faces while I'm preaching mainly because I get to see if I'm boring anyone to sleep. And if that's the case, I can kind of tell, hey, I need to wrap it up, shorten it up a little bit and, and get to the point. But right now I don't get the luxury of seeing your faces and seeing your reactions to what I'm preaching. So it's really just what I get to preach and however long I feel like going. Uh, and so 
Uh, I pray that you guys are staying awake, but I have no way of knowing. And right now, uh, please excuse the lightning and thunderstorm that's happening around me. I'm kind of uh, limited on time. We'll be going down to Augusta this weekend. Uh, so if you think about it, pray for safe travels. But uh, we'll be with my family for the first time since everything kind of happened. And um, we're excited about that. But that leaves limited area for me to deliver this sermon. So that being said, let's hop into our passage today in John chapter 8, verse 12. And then going all the way through to verse 38. And I kind of want to, before we really get into unpacking it all, we just read it, but I, uh, before we get into unpacking it all, I want to kind of tell y'all where we're going and kind of how we we got here. So where we're going is going to be, we're going to try and focus and kind of camp out in verse 12. Uh, I want to kind of give you a survey of what's actually happening in the entirety of our text this morning. But but really want to focus in on the words of Jesus saying that I am the light of the world. And, and so that kind of leads us into how did we get here? Why is he saying this? And so if you remember, I'm not going to walk you through all the way through John 1, all the way through where we're at. But I, I do want to point you back to John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, Jesus comes to the Feast of Tabernacles, comes to the Feast of Booths. And if you remember the conversation amongst those who were at the Feast of Booths is who is this Jesus guy? Where is this Jesus guy at first before he showed up? But who is he? Is he the Messiah? Is he a good teacher? Is he a deceiver? And as we saw in John chapter 7, as, as Chad pointed out, that in the midst of this conversation of, of is Jesus the Christ, Jesus points to one of the uh, the sacrament ceremonies that were going on at this festival of uh, the, the water that represented the water that the Lord provided for the people in um, the nation of Israel as they were being brought out of slavery in Egypt. And so they're in the wilderness, they, they have no water, and the Lord provides water from a rock. And so they, they symbolize this in a ceremony that they did. And then what Jesus says is that you guys are looking back to what happened in the wilderness, and rightfully so. It was an amazing act of the Lord's provision for you as a nation and as a people. But what I have to provide for you, for all who are thirsty, not just the people of Israel, but all who are thirsty, they can come to me and they can drink because what I have is living water. Out of me flows streams of living water and once you drink of that living water out of you will also flow the same thing and so chad asked the question are we currently dehydrated i kind of want to ask a, a similar question today is are we living in darkness where are we closing off the light into our life and so we saw that at the end of chapter 7, and then we saw last week with Hart talking through uh, the beginning of chapter 8 and how we believe that uh, it was not a part of the original manuscripts, meaning that it was not a part of the inerrant word of God. But it did have great practical wisdom, and it more than likely happened. And so with this being a story of our Lord that is, is 
most likely accurate. We say most likely just because it's not a part of the inerrant scripture. So, but the the history that we have on it, it is true that that this actually occurred or an event similar to this occurred. And so I think they place this right here in this passage. Uh, they tried to fit it in a couple other places, but I think they placed it in this passage because of the verse that we're going to look at this morning in verse 12. Because if you think about what happened, what transpired during that moment, is there's this woman and this man who are committing this act in the darkness of their hearts and in the darkness of solitude with one another. And they're caught in this act. And what happens is the Jewish leaders, the Jewish rulers, they pull this woman out of her darkness, physically pull this woman and bring her into the center of the public eye, into the light. And they could have easily stoned her because that's what the law commanded. But instead, they were really seeking to kill Jesus. So they wanted to test Jesus. And they brought her in front of Jesus and they said, now, Jesus, the law tells us very clearly that she deserves to be stoned. And, and, and that would be just of us to do. What do you say? In typical Jesus fashion, he, he gives a strange response or a really strange reaction at first. He kneels down and he writes something in the sand. And then he stands up and he says, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And it's almost as if you can see and hear these thuds hitting the ground as one after another man drops their stone out of their hand, starting with the older gentleman and then working their way down to the younger men. And it's because they're understanding that in that moment, what they are identifying as is the guilty party in this situation. It's not just this woman. It's them as well. And Jesus exposes that in them. He is the light that brings clarity to the situation. Not only that, whenever he says, I am the light of the world, he says that those who live in me will no longer walk in darkness. And so what he does is he looks down to this woman and he doesn't just comfort her and he doesn't just have compassion on her. He calls her to something greater. He calls her to a life that is filled with righteousness. He says, go and sin no more and that's where we're at in our passage today where jesus says i am the light of the world so what i what i think what happens in and so that's where we, we where we were here's where we are in verse 12 and then where it's going is that after jesus says this that i'm the light of the world it's almost as if they kind of ignore what he said but it it's not really. If you read it and you're like, okay, they never make another reference to him being the light of the world here. What's really happening is he's just making such a bold statement, such a strong statement about who he is that they have to question his authority. They have to question whether or not he's sane, whether he's not, whether or not he's trustworthy. And so they say, hey, nobody else is bearing witness about you. But what they forget is the very reliable, very trustworthy John the Baptist who bore witness about him being the light of the world. And so they chose to kind of ignore that witness. And, and Jesus says, it doesn't matter. I know that your law says that there needs to be two or more witnesses for a testimony to be true. 
but nobody needs to testify about me except for me because I know where I have been, where I've came from, and I know where I'm going. But you don't know either because you don't know the Father. He says, the Father bears witness about me. And so as we walk through the passage, and then it, it comes to a point where there is another dissension in the crowd. There are those who believe, and then there are those who do not believe. As Jesus then begins to talk to those who are believing, what he says is, is that if you follow me, I will set you free. And so what we know, and I think this sentence kind of summarizes a passage. It says, uh, if Jesus really has been sent by God, if Jesus really has been sent by God, then he is the light that will lead you and I to true freedom, to true freedom. Well, if you're a believer this morning, then you are working from the premise that Jesus is God. And with that premise, what we need to understand is that in order to see this freedom in our lives, this freedom from the bondage of sin, as Jesus talks about, then what we need to do is we need to behold the person of God. So I want us to look at two things. I want us to look at the beholding of the light in Jesus, and then I want us to look at the impact of that life on our spiritual life. So beholding of the light of Jesus and then the impact of that light. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, he says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. See, this beholding of Jesus cannot occur unless we know Jesus. And Jesus is telling us, he's giving us the answer that everybody's asking, who is this person? And he says, out of me comes living water. In chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me and believes will have life. And then he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus is telling us who he is. He's telling us who we ought to behold. Now, the immediate context of what's going on here would be the Feast of Booths. We've talked about that already. But one of the things that happened during the Feast of Booths is that every night they would have what was called the illumination of the temple. And what would happen is in the temple you had you had essentially a, a series of courts. So you had your inner courts that only the priest uh, could be in, and they would be making sacrifices for the people. You had the courts right out of that, which were for which were reserved for the priest and the other Jewish men, and women were not in, allowed in that. And then there was a bigger court outside of there that. It was kind of a general court that women were allowed into, and it was called the women's court. Uh, but these were Jewish women and Jewish men that were allowed into this court. And so it was a little bit more spacious, a little bit bigger, but not nearly as big as the outer court, which was where everybody roamed. Gentiles and Jews alike, men and women alike. And there could be roughly ten to 15,000 people within the outer courts at one time. So why do I tell you that? Well, within the women's courts, 
they would every night set up these candles and they would light all light all the candles throughout the women's courts and it would be so many candles that it would actually illuminate the temple so that throughout the entire city of Jerusalem they could see this temple shining forth and what it represented was God leading the people out of Egypt and he led them by a pillar of fire if you remember in, in, in the story of Exodus so he leads them out in the pillar in a pillar of fire and, and that represented God's presence with his people and so where is God's presence with his people now well the Jews believed that it was in the temple and so they would illuminate the temple and so what Jesus is saying here is this might be happening right now it might be during the nighttime or it might be the morning after and Jesus looks around and he sees the lights have gone out they've dimmed down and he goes look at all this you know how you're remembering the light that brought you out of Egypt? Well, I'm not going to say that I'm the light of just the Israelites. I'm going to say that I am the light of the world. So from an immediate context standpoint, what's going on around him in, in his physical setting, there is this impactful statement of saying that I am the light of the world. And those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of light. Now, that's what is happening right there. It, it doesn't take any type of uh, real, real historic understanding of uh, God in the Old Testament or real any historic understanding of the Messiah. But the Jewish leaders and even the Jewish common folk would, would understand that whenever Jesus is saying that I am the light of the world, is that he was making a much larger comment than just saying metaphorically, I provide a good pathway for people to live their life by. What he was saying was, look to the prophet Isaiah. Look to the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 14. And, and look what they have to say about the Messiah. Look what they have to say about the one who would rule the heavens and the earth. He is categorized as being the light of the world. In Zechariah 14, it even talks about this happening in the end times during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And it makes, makes mention that out of this ruler's city would flow rivers of living water. And Jesus says that I am that Messiah. Not only that, by saying that I am the light of the world, he is also making reference to Psalm 27.1, where David says that the Lord is my light and he is my salvation. When the Lord is connected to salvation in the Old Testament, it is talking about Yahweh. It is talking about God, the great I am. So whenever Jesus says that I am the Lord of salvation, I am the light of the world, those are equal. And, and that's how the first century Jews would understand it, is that those two comments are equal. And that's why they, they had to attack his authority. They had to attack his credibility. 
they had no other ground to stand on. And yet, even then, they still had no ground to stand on. Because at the end of the day, when they questioned his authority, all Jesus had to say is that the Father, the Father testifies about me. You want to see evidence for my credibility? Look at the ground that you're standing on. Think about the air in your lungs. That was given to you by me. That's my testimony. That's what's testifying about me. I don't need another human being to testify about me. I can testify on my own. And he equates himself with the Father. And so the Jewish implications to that would be something along the lines of what John actually says at the beginning of his gospel. When he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And so when they're thinking about, about Jesus being the light of the world, their mind not only looks to the messianic promises of, of what the Christ will look like and what the Christ will bring to his people, but it also looks back all the way to page one of the Bible, where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And whenever he created the heavens and the earth, it's, he doesn't just jump to, and it was good. Look to Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So here, here we have God in the act of creation. He creates this world and it and it's almost as if there's chaos that surrounds it it's almost as if it's incomplete which it is at this time he creates the earth and the heavens and there's it's without void it's without form oh, i'm sorry it's without form it is void and darkness is overtaking it and the first words that are recorded in our scripture that come from the very mouth of God, that God speaks audibly, is let there be light. Let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. See, I would venture to argue that on the basis of that scripture <clears throat> and on the basis of what we know about our own spiritual darkness, our own um, void within our souls without Christ, the, the emptiness and the formlessness that exist in our sin is that until there is light that is spoken into our lives, there will never be anything good that comes out of it. Until there was light that was spoken into this world, nothing good was able to be produced by it. Nothing was able to be formed. Nothing was able to fill the gaps of the emptiness that, that was space and time. There was no beauty within it. But light, when there's light, 
you can see the beauty of God's creation. You can see the beauty of God's glory. And that beauty changes you and me. So that's who Jesus is. That's, that's the illumination of the person of Christ being the light of the world. This is whom we should behold so that we might experience real change. So here's the spiritual implications of this light. And I think the best way to, to bring in this point within the sermon is to bring an illustration to the table. So um, my daughter, mine and Andrea's daughter, uh, Harper, is two and a half years old right now. And uh, about six months ago, right after she turned two, we decided to make the leap into the big girl bed. And she loved it, and she still loves it, uh, but for different reasons now. At first, it was just a change. She felt like a, a big girl, and she took responsibility for being in the big girl bed. And things went really well for about the first three or four months. And then all of a sudden, um, in the past probably six to eight weeks, uh, we kind of hit a road block or speed bump or however you want to say it. Uh, and she started to realize that there were no longer rails around her bed. There were no longer rails around her mattress. She could get out anytime that she really wanted to. And so she has. And, uh, and it's almost comical because it's like not five minutes after we tuck her in and we say, all right, Harper, go to sleep, no playing. And it's funny because now she'll, she'll be playing house and she'll put a baby underneath a blanket and she'll go, no plane, go to sleep. And so anyways, that's kind of a side story. But we'll we'll say, all right, Harper, no playing, go to sleep. And she'll go, okay, yes, sir. Yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And so we'll turn off the light and we'll walk back into the room. And like I said, not even five minutes later, all of a sudden we hear rustling in her room. And she doesn't understand it and she doesn't understand how we know but it's it's comical because she doesn't get that we have a monitor a baby monitor in the den with us so we can hear her every move and it's even more comical whenever she actually picks up i don't know if it's the receiving end or, or however the microphone end uh in her room and she'll pick it up and she'll act like it's a telephone and she'll be playing house in her room at nine o'clock at night after we had put her down 30 minutes before and, and she'll be talking just like she's talking with her best friend in the middle of the day. Uh, she'll have turned the lights on. She'll have uh, played with all of her toys within her room. She'll have gotten out whatever books that she could and read through them all. And all of a sudden, Andrew and I are like, okay, we've given her enough leash. Let's go instruct her to go back to bed. And so one of us will get up and we'll, we'll go back to the room and she'll hear our footsteps as we go across the kitchen. And then all of a sudden we'll hear her little footsteps uh, just kind of sprint across her room and jump into her bed. And so by the time we get into her room, we open the door and without fail, uh, sometimes she tries to turn off the light beforehand, but without fail, whether the light's on or not, we'll, we'll make sure the light's on. We open the door and then we look and she is sitting straight up in her bed with a blanket over her, completely covering her. And I'm like, Harper, babe, do you actually think that I can't see you right now? I can see you pretty clearly that you're sitting right there and you're awake 
and we put you down 15, 20 minutes before, why are you trying to hide this? And so I, I, I say that illustration for the sole purpose of the other night I did that. And while I was thinking through this, this sermon, I was thinking, man, we do the same thing with the Lord all the time. We, we act as though in our sin, we can get away with him not finding out about it. Just because we think that other people don't find out about it, that we can hide it from the Lord as well. And, and the main spiritual implication of Jesus being the light of the world is that we can no longer get away with sin. He won't allow us to. You see, one of the, the biggest detriments to our spiritual life is acting as if we can keep our sin secret. And then also acting that, that we can project something that's just not true of us as spiritual and physical beings. Matt Chandler says this. He says, secrets are the darkness in which death and destruction grow. Secrets are the darkness in which death and destruction grow. You see, most oftentimes what happens within Christian communities is they say 15, 20 years down the road, somebody's been serving in the ministry or, or serving in the body of Christ. And then all of a sudden some bombshell of a sin is exposed. They're like, what in the world? Where did this come from? It's because they never took the off-ramps that were available to them, the off-ramps of confession. And I think, I think one of the reasons why that is, is because what we do so often in the church is we, we like to act as though there's two different people within us. There's this real person, the person who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ and is still suffering through the pains of this world and trying to fight the temptations day by day. And, and we, we neglect confession to our brothers and sisters in Christ, as, as the book of James instructs us and commands us to, so that it might be effective to the end of our salvation. And so we neglect that confession. And instead, what we do is we put this other person up to present this other person up on a pedestal and we say this is the best version of me look at this person all the while the reality is there's still this other person that will never see the light of day because we would be too ashamed we're a christian now we shouldn't be struggling with this or that sin we should be beyond that right We've been a Christian for years. And that's not the message of Scripture. That's not the message of the gospel. And thankfully, the message of the gospel is that those whom the Lord has redeemed, their sin will never go unrevealed. Will never go unrevealed. The Lord will always bring it to light. And so, for the sake of, of not speaking in generalities, I, I think it might be helpful to really just talk about some 
potential sins that, that might be going on in our church, and it might not be going on in our church. But I, I, before I, I talk about them, I, I, want to, I want to issue this. There is comfort in the light of Christ. Just as Jesus, when, when he knelt down to the woman who was caught in adultery and said, go and sin no more, what he is saying is that you have the light in you now. Though you didn't voluntarily confess this to me, though it was exposed in the midst of your sin, you now have the power and the privilege to walk in the light. Go and sin no more. So, so whether you're five, ten years into your marriage and, and things are starting to get a little rough, and, and maybe instead of confiding in your wife, or your husband, you start confiding in a coworker of the opposite sex. And at the, at the beginning, it starts out harmless, right? And then you start to begin getting feelings. And, and you have this opportunity to go on the off-ramp. Take the off-ramp and, and confess. Confess to the Lord. Confess to your spouse. Confess to a brother or sister in Christ. And, and cut ties. But the secrecy will likely prevail because you can't confess. What if your spouse found out? That would ruin your marriage, right? Or, or, or what if maybe what's actually happening is that you're, you recently had an injury. Maybe it was two, three years ago, you did something to your back and you got some prescription pills for it. Maybe your body's healed by now. But you just can't seem to kick those prescriptions. Or maybe you know that you have an issue with self-control. Whether that be with food or whether that be with entertainment or, or alcohol, you, you have an issue with self-control. And, and instead of confessing this to a brother or sister in Christ and, and, and being exposed in your sin, you don't take the off-ramp and you just continue to fight it on your own. Or maybe maybe it's the sin of lust and maybe you've been struggling it with it for six months, a year, 10 years, 20 years. And you keep saying that I'm going to break this. I'm going to fight this. I'm going to get over this. But all the while you, you refuse to reveal it to anybody else. Because if they found out, your reputation would be ruined. And what happens is that most often, those who are found in Christ, your reputation is going to get ruined. Whether it's 5, 10, 15 years from now, doesn't matter. The light will always find you out. You cannot hide sin from the Lord like Harper tries to hide from Andrea and myself whenever she's disobeying. It doesn't work with us as parents, and it surely doesn't, doesn't work with the omniscient God of the universe. And, and in his love and in his grace, he will expose that sin. So here's, here's the opportunity that you have this morning. There's an off-ramp. 
you have the opportunity to confess this sin that you've been struggling with. You have the opportunity to reach out to a brother or sister in the Lord and say, I just can't seem to kick this. I need to pray with you. And you need to confess this to the Lord. And what he offers you is redemption. And what he offers you is freedom. True, lasting freedom. Because he says those who die in their sin are those who are slaves to sin. But those who live in me will be freed from sin. So here is the invitation to you this morning. Will you believe that Jesus is the light of the world? Because if you believe that Jesus is the light of the world, then you are also confessing to the fact that within you and within me, there is nothing but darkness. We are empty. We are formless. We are void. And we need his light to bring about some sort of purpose within our life. What you're confessing is that there's still sin within your life, even as a believer. And the only way that you're actually going to beat it is if you confess it. So if you bring it before the Lord who is able to free you from this. Because Jude, the brother of Jesus, actually says that Jesus is the one who freed the Israelites from slavery. So if he was able to free the Israelites from the slavery of the Egyptians, how much more would he be able to free us from our spiritual slavery to sin? Jesus' light is a reflection of his power. And he is powerful and mighty enough to save. I want to close with this. I want to close with a passage from John. Uh, It's actually a passage in another one of his letters. It's uh, the letter, the revelation of, uh, of John. And so... Uh, Revelation 21, 1 through 8. So this is the hope that you and I get to live in. This is the hope that we have whenever we look to the light of the world. He says this. This is John observing what's going on in the new heavens and the new earth. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is the image of imagery that we saw all throughout the Exodus series. He will be to them their God and they will be to him his people. And, and see the effects here in chapter or in verse four. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy. These words are trustworthy and true. He's bearing witness about his own words yet again. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And it goes on to talk about the glory of the Lord being the source of light in the new heavens and new earth. There is neither day nor night, but there is constant illumination because of the glory that shines from the Son of God. May we bask and behold in that glory so that we might be transformed into one degree of glory to another. May we continue to seek to be sanctified and may we continually be willing to confess and illuminate the sin that is dragging us back into darkness. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We come before you as hungry beggars Lord will you please feed us Lord we come before you as thirsty souls please give us living water Lord we wander in our darkness and in our shame and in our sin Lord would you please be our light Father may we seek to comfort one another in our pain and in our suffering that, that this dark world has caused. And may we be willing to confess our sins to one another. May we be willing to confess our sins to you. Father, strengthen us, sanctify us, and help us to walk in the light of Christ. Amen.